And I would like the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah uh, chapter 7. I'm going to begin uh, reading in verse 1. I think we'll read first and then I'll explain. Isaiah chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the sons of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it. Let us make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the two kings whom you dread will be forsaken. You know, we are so familiar with, um, thank you, Sharon. We are so familiar with Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted means God is with us. That's so common to us. We see it on Christmas cards. Uh, we uh, see it, uh, write it in letters this time of year. We see it uh, all kinds of uh, places quoted. Um, we hear it in songs. You hear sermons about it, like this morning. And yet, 
oftentimes the only association we have with Isaiah 7.14 is what we find in Matthew chapter 1 where the angel appears and talks to Mary and then ultimately to Joseph about the fact that uh, Mary's going to have a son. And the passage is quoted from Isaiah as support that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And the Holy Spirit underscores for us in Matthew's Gospel the, the accurate understanding of this prophecy that it literally means a virgin, a woman who's never known a man, never had sexual intercourse, is going to actually conceive and bear a child. And that child is going to be God come in human flesh, the presence of God come among us. Typically, that's about as far as our understanding and association goes. But it's interesting the context in which this prophecy is given and this passage occurs. And I want to take you on a little bit of a story this morning into Old Testament history and give you some background because there is a powerful spiritual lesson to be gained. And in gaining the insight of, of that spiritual lesson, we get an application to our lives and uh, to God's promises to us and also to our hope and, and our future. You may recall that after the death of Solomon... The kingdom was divided. The ten tribes in the north formed their own kingdom. And the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, became the southern kingdom. Jerusalem remained the capital of the southern kingdom. But, but in the north, um, uh, they kind of focused on a whole different uh, kind of spiritual orientation. In fact, as you look at the history of the northern kingdom from the time of Solomon until the time the Assyrians destroyed it in 722, there was not one king who ever served God. They were so concerned that if they maintained the loyalty to Jehovah God, that the hearts of the people would always be looking toward Jerusalem, and that the kingdoms would not remain separated. And so, as a consequence of that, the kings in the north uh, adopted a different kind of religious system, and they moved the people away from God. Uh, and as a, as a consequence, the northern kingdom just continued to decline further and further in apostasy and rebellion. In the southern kingdom, we had a little bit of a different story because, uh, first of all, the, the Davidic dynasty, the sons of David, never left the throne. In the north, the kings came from all over the place, and there was a whole... Uh, turnover of dynasties from family to family. But in the south, the kings all came from the line of David. They could point back to David as their, as their ancestor. In fact, this was the promise of God. The scepter shall never depart from David the king. And Jesus himself came from the line of David. That was a part of the, 
the preserving prophecy of God. But in the South, still the sad truth is that more often than not, those kings rebelled against God. There were some good kings that popped up now and again and led the nation in revival. Josiah is an example. Hezekiah is an example. But for the most part, in the south even, there was wandering and drifting. Of all the kings in the southern kingdom, Ahaz was probably the worst. Ahaz, from the day that he took the throne until the day that he died, did nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord continually. And the political climate at the time that we open the Scriptures to Isaiah chapter 1, some 750 or so years before the birth of Christ, the political climate was such that the northern kingdoms of Syria and the northern uh, kingdom of, of Aram were wanting to come down and force the southern kingdom into an alliance and more or less take over and bring them together. And uh, Ahaz was resisting that. There's a, can I see that map? Um, yeah. Uh, the king of Rezin up there in Aram and the king and King Pekah in Israel in the northern ten tribes we're trying to get Ahaz to join with them and form a political alliance against Assyria. You know, in studying for this, I have to tell you, it's almost like reading today's paper. Because if you could, if you could expand this map a little bit and look uh, eastward over um, toward the Persian Gulf and northward toward those two seas uh, in, in uh, Eastern uh, Europe and Western Asia, uh, or Eastern Asia, Western, anyway, up north there. They are north. <laughs> if you form a triangle that lands on the modern border of Syria and Iran, you have the kingdom of Assyria. Trouble spot. <laughs> it always has been. And this trouble spot, the king of Assyria, a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser, was wanting to come down and take over the whole area. He was on a, an aggressive campaign to bring the entire Middle East under his control. And these two northern kings, Rezin and Pekah, wanted to come down to form an alliance with Ahaz and say, look, the three of us can stand together against Assyria. Well, Ahaz says, I'm not sure that's going to work. So unbeknownst to the kings in the north, what Ahaz did was he took off to the east on a little journey and he formed an alliance with the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. It was a secret alliance, but basically what he was saying was, I'm not going to be a part of the rebellion. Well, the two kingdoms in the north decided to come down toward the south and force Ahaz into an agreement with them. And so they came south to, to force a war 
and they were going to uh, bring this character uh, by the name of um, Tabeel, who was just an ordinary lowlife. <laughs> they were going to put him on the throne and depose Ahaz. And Tabeel was basically going to be a puppet that they could control. Are, are you with me so far? So we've got these two northern kingdoms coming down to take Ahaz off the throne, put Tabeel in his place, and force the three kingdoms of Judah, Israel, and Syria to come together and form this coalition against the Assyrians. And Ahaz wasn't having any part of it. Well, King Rezin decided that he would come down around and come up from the bottom. And this is where Isaiah 7 opens up, that the northern two kingdoms have formed a common pincher movement and are coming at Jerusalem from both the north and the south, and they have Jerusalem in a vice. And they have every intention of squashing Jerusalem, overwhelming it, taking Ahaz off the throne. And as Isaiah puts it in this lovely poetic language, <laughs> The Arameans have encamped in Ephraim, and his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They're trembling in their boots, as we would say. And in that moment of terrifying dread that they're about to get squashed between these two armies, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz, and he says, give Ahaz a message. Tell him not to worry about these kings. Tell him that I will be his defense. Tell him that I am going to stand with him, and that I will deliver the, the kingdom of Judah, and I will preserve the throne of David. Let him know that I am his security. That's in essence what Isaiah's message was to Ahaz. And furthermore, Isaiah says to Ahaz, God has told me that you can ask for any sign you want as proof that he will keep true to his promise. It can be as... As low as hell, it can be as high as heaven. Ask anything you want, and God will do it as proof that He will be Judah's protector. And Ahaz says, Oh, I'm not falling for that. I'm not going to test the, the, the king. I'm not going to test God, uh, Jehovah God. I'm not going to put him on trial for this. I'm not going to uh, put him to the test. Um, I, I'm not going there. Sounds very pious. You know, I don't need to test the Lord. But what Ahaz was actually saying was, number one, I don't have any faith in God. 
And number two, I'm not taking you up on this. I'm not about to ask any kind of sign. In fact, Ahaz had already sent messengers and had made an agreement. He had agreed to come under the authority of Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria if the Assyrians would deliver him. And what we don't read in this passage, but you can read it at home in 2 Kings chapter 16. And I'll warn you ahead of time if you try to do that, get out some paper and pencil because you're going to have to keep track of what's being said on paper and draw some lines and diagrams because it gets real confusing. But if you go back and read 2 Kings chapter 16, what Ahaz did instead was he had made a secret trip. He had gotten plans for a temple in Damascus from the, from the Assyrians. He had sent word to the high priest to build a new altar after the plans of the Assyrian gods. He built a new altar in front of the temple. He took the old temple utensils. He had already stolen some of the gold and silver as a gift to Tiglath-Pileser. He took the old altar out and put it in a subservient position. He cut off the feet of the holy lavers in which the sacrifices were washed. And he used those as a different structure around the pagan altar. And then Ahaz closed the doors to the temple. And he sacrificed his son to the Baal. And he began to worship the false god. And he set up the pagan altar as the center of worship for Judah. In other words, he said, I'm not trusting God. I'm going to trust the king of Assyria. He's got the might. He's got the power. He's the one that can come deliver us. In fact, I'm even going to shut off access to the God of Israel, the God of our fathers, and we're going to worship the gods of Assyria because our hope lies in a human deliverer. But in response to Isaiah's challenge, when Ahaz said, I'm not putting God to the test, Isaiah said, all right then, you're going to die. But the house of David is going to receive a promise. And here's the promise. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And his name will be, God is in our midst. God is living among us. He will be our deliverer. That's the background of the prophecy that is quoted in Matthew as support to explain how Mary, this virgin maiden, 
has suddenly become pregnant with a baby that was planted in her womb by the Holy Spirit. When we go back and look at the fulfillment of that prophecy, it actually occurs in kind of three stages. If you continue to read in Isaiah and you read on through the seventh chapter and the eighth chapter and and on into nine, in fact, if if you read uh, in chapter seven, um, uh, the uh, the passage. Well, let's see. Where is it? Before he is, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. And the land with these two kings you dread will be forsaken. What actually happened was, in the immediate future, apparently Isaiah's first wife had died. And he was betrothed to a young woman who would have been a virgin at the time of the prophecy. And he married her. And their first child was the child that was born uh, very soon after this whole uh, deal with Ahaz. And before this child was two years old, about a year and a half maybe, the northern two kingdoms that we saw on the map were utterly destroyed. And within 65 years the northern kingdom didn't even exist. The Assyrians had come in in 722 and finally overrun it entirely and relocated all the people, uh, almost all of them, uh, to new territories. And so, when you look at the history of the moment, you think, well, maybe, maybe that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Maybe it's the idea that Isaiah married a young woman and gave birth, and this young son of theirs was the, the reality of this promise. He wasn't even two years old before these northern kings were destroyed. But we know that that is not the case. First of all, because the specific word of Isaiah, when you look at the the, the actual wording of the promise is that it is not a virgin will get married and conceive. It is a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And so you have a preview, but the fulfillment actually comes later. People have argued about this through the years and, and said, well... Um, there's no such thing as a virgin birth. It's a misunderstanding of Isaiah. Uh, the, the Hebrew word, they didn't even have a word for virgin. All they had was a word for young maiden. Uh, of course, if you were a young unmarried maiden in, in Israel, you'd better be a virgin. That was, you know, that was their culture. But anyway, uh, and so there's been this debate. But the Holy Spirit has cleared it up for us. By quoting Isaiah 7.14 in the Greek language in Matthew in a way that could not possibly be misinterpreted. Using words that mean precisely what we understand them to mean. In Matthew chapter 1, 
as he goes back and quotes this passage from Isaiah, he says, this is to fulfill the prophecy. Not Isaiah's child, but this child. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Behold, a virgin will be with son, will be with child, and will give birth to a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God has come into our midst. He's living among us. John put it this way as as he opens his gospel in chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and pitched its tent beside ours. God came down into humanity and pitched His tent around us. He is with us. He's living beside us. His presence has come to explain to us the Father, to bring God close to give us a sense of God's love and God's grace and and to see Him up close and in person. You remember the question in John 14, show us the Father and that will suffice us. That will make us happy. And Jesus says, have you been so long a time with me and you have not recognized me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. I am God up close and in person. I have come to to be His presence in your midst. I've come to be your comforter. I've come to be your deliverer. I've come to be your healer. I've come to be uh, your redeemer. I'm the one that saves your life from the pit. I am the presence of God among you. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what Isaiah was trying to say to Ahaz. Do you want some false king, some king of Assyria that you think is so mighty and powerful? Don't trust in horses and chariots. Don't trust in men of war. Put your hope in the Lord your God. Put your trust in Him. He will deliver you. He has all the power. Don't look to human solutions. Look to God. And Ahaz was having none of it. And in a time in the history of the nation of Israel, when they longed for a king, they longed for a deliverer, they longed for someone to rescue them, God said, I will send you my own son. I will give Him to be my presence in your midst. I will bring Him to live among you. And all of you who put your hope and trust in Me will find the thing you're longing for. You will find Me. And I will be your sustainer. I will be your strength. I will be your hope. I will be your Redeemer. That's His promise. Jesus came to bring God close that John could lean against his breast, that Thomas could put his fingers in the nail prints, that Mary could cling to his feet, that he could eat with them, 
and drink with them and fish with them and walk with them. What do you want? What do you want the most? Are you looking to human solutions to solve your problems? Are you looking to the ideas and philosophies of men and the hope of science or whatever else? Or do you long for the presence of God near you? Do you want Him in your life? There's also a third unfolding to this promise that not only would Jesus Christ come in human flesh, the eternal Son of God, clothed with humanity, but that He would come in glory and power to establish His kingdom. It wasn't going to happen in Ahaz's day, not, not the ultimate kingdom. It wasn't going to happen in the first century under Roman oppression. But the promise was there. That one day, God Himself would sit on the throne of Israel. The mighty Deliverer would be present among them. And God Himself would be the one who would reign and rule from Jerusalem. We look for a day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come back. In Judah's darkest hour, a promise was made. After 400 years of prophetic silence, at last a child was born. And as human history draws to a close as we know it, when the governments of men and nations have run their course in humanity's darkest hour, the King of Kings will appear. Jesus, our Emmanuel, and He will reign for a thousand years. And the thing that I want you to take home with you this morning is that in your darkest hour, this same Jesus is your hope. He is the light shining in the darkness. He is the one who enables us to say with confident faith from Isaiah 12, 2-3, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Are you in a desperate moment? Are you in great need this morning? Where are you looking? David understood that predicament. He said, I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. I don't see any help out there. Who will help me? My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. 
And if you put your hope in the Lord, He will come to you. Emmanuel means God with us. God in our midst. Whatever your need this morning, if you put your eyes on Him, He will come to you. He will make His presence with you. He will visit you in His person. And He will comfort you and bring light in your darkest moment. That's the message of Isaiah 7.14. That's the message of the hope of Israel. And it's our hope. Emmanuel. God is with us. And He always will be. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at Ahaz in his moment of crisis, in his panic, and in his lack of faith, he turned to human alliance, cut off your presence from Israel and Judah, Close the doors of the temple. Set up a pagan altar. And worship false gods. And oh, what the Assyrians did to Judah. How they ravaged the land. How they stripped its crops. How they denuded it from all of their produce, they were reduced to desperation and poverty because of their false alliance. In its stead, you offer yourself. You offer to be present with us. You offer our To be our hope and our confidence and our assurance. Lord, will you visit us? We look to you. We're like David. We we look out there on the world scene and we say, who is there to help me? There is no one. My hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. We look to you, Father. Come to us. Emmanuel, make your presence known in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.